So, um, I've just gotten back into town. I was up in uh, New York State at a conference for women on uh, Women in Courage, sponsored by Omega. And one of the interesting themes was identifying some of the myths that we live by collectively in this culture that keep us trapped. And one of the myths that really was named a lot was this basic, and, and it's the shadow side of the masculine, it's not men, it's the shadow side of the masculine, which is it's us against them and we're competing and we're trying to beat or win or whatever. So whether it's a self or a country or a race or whatever, them out there is the adversary and in some way we have to defend ourselves or prove ourselves and win. And it's really very tense right now. I mean, the elections, of course, amps that all up because it's very hard um, at, in this kind of a season not to slide right into my side's the right side, my beliefs are the right beliefs. Even if I know that there's not a right or wrong, I'm right, <laughs> you know, in, my, in the way I'm thinking about these things. I love that saying that the world is divided into those who think they're right. And that's the whole saying. So, so the inquiry at this, this weekend was really not trying to replace the myth with, okay, if it's not us against them, with another myth, but what is the experience that really moves this globe towards healing? In other words, how do we really wake up out of that trance of the other and the bad other? And, and the answer is not that we that we don't care and act. For instance, when we see social oppression and injustice and so on, but how do we not make others the bad other? And this question came up on Monday. We had a, um, we, once a month we have a class for deepening practice, which you're all invited to. And one person asked that, he said, you know, I know that the ideal is to wake up out of this duality and to really see the sense of oneness and connectedness and interdependence. But the reality, the truth is, that every day it's, you know, I use the word spacesuit, I kind of get into my ego self and I go through the day and it really feels like others are other. And sometimes there are others that are really irritating me. And, you know, so how do we really wake up out of that? And it's very interesting if you look at really the evolution of, of our bodies through, through the eons that we are designed, our brains are designed to scan for difference and our reflexes are designed to biochemically to tighten and have fight or flight when we sense something outside is threatening. The most basic perception is self in here and world out there. So in a way, all the great spiritual traditions are inviting us to wake up out of a psychobiology that's really um, part of our conditioning. And so that's the challenging news. And then the good news is that it's, it's part of our evolution to perceive ourselves as separate and it's not the end of the evolutionary story. And we intuit that. It's like we know we get stuck in that separateness, but we also intuit 
that there is, and, and you can feel it around the globe, that there is this movement of waking up and having this reverence for life and sensing the, the spirit or aliveness that's shining through all the eyes and all the life forms and that we're living for the sake of that that it's not that we're, we're trying to live... We know the suffering if our day is all about what I need or what I'm afraid of. We know that when we're in a mindset of blame, and just check it out, when you're blaming, when there's any sense of I'm superior or blaming another, we don't really feel good. It's not a deep sense of well-being. It's a very temporary kind of inflation. We know that. There's a great anonymous saying that who is it that finds fault? Who is it that's unhappy? The one that finds fault. And and that really resonates to me. So in this um, evolution of consciousness and the Dalai Lama described it as the hope of humanity, there's a shift from sensing our whole world is kind of orbited around what I want, what I need, that I'm, I'm trying to make it through a day, that others are out there, to really sensing that we belong to something larger, to really sensing the love and the connection that is really our essence. Like one of my favorite little stories, a man was lost while driving through the country and he, he tried to read a map, he accidentally drove off the road into a ditch. And though he wasn't injured, his car was stuck deep in the mud, so, a man, so the man walked to a nearby farm to ask for help. Warwick can get you out of that ditch, said the farmer, pointing to an old mule standing in the field. The man looked at the haggardly mule and looked at the farmer who just stood there repeating, yep, old Warwick can do the job. The man figured he had nothing to lose. The two men and Warwick made their way back to the ditch. The farmer hitched the mule to the car. With a snap of the reins, he shouted, Pull Fred, pull Jack, pull Ted, pull Warwick. And the mule pulled the car from the ditch with very little effort. The man was amazed. He thanked the farmer, patted the mule, and asked, Why did you call out all those other names before you called Warwick? The farmer grinned and said, Old Warwick's just about blind. As long as he believes he's part of a team, he doesn't mind pulling. (laughs) There is something about when we wake up a little out of that habit of me against the world and it can happen when we're in nature and we realize we are nature. And it can happen when we're with another and we get that sense that who's looking out through those eyes really is the same who's looking out through these eyes. Or it can happen when we're meditating and there's a quieting and then we just are the silence and life's just happening and there's a sense of wholeness and oneness. And when that, that kind of capsule of self-centeredness dissolves in those times and everyone has touched it, we wouldn't be here unless some, we had tasted something that we know is something we cherish. When that capsule of self-centeredness dissolves, then the the universe flows through us, the intelligence of the universe and the creativity of the universe 
and the love of the universe flows through us. And it's not that we become more loving, it's just that the what we are, the love, is able to flow through because there's not that uh, contraction of selfing. So, back to the conference, this Women Encourage conference, my part of it was really to talk about how the practices of presence help us to relax that selfing and really open us to the courage, that greatness of heart that is our nature. We are naturally courageous, but we get shut down and fearful and we lose our spontaneity when we get caught in uh, that selfing, in reacting, in moi, in taking care of number one. So the gateway or the pathway to that courage is really um, what I sometimes describe as a committed presence. This is what I want to talk about tonight. That if we just use the word presence, it can sound, um, okay, so where is that or what is that? Because the conditioning is so strong to leave this here-ness, do you notice that when you sit, that we kind of arrive and the senses are open and you're here, but it's like in a moment, often a thought, it's the past, it's the future. It takes a quality of commitment, this evolution of consciousness that's happening is energized by that in us which really wants to be awake. So that when you get lost in thought and you notice thinking, there's something in you that cares more about being here than being in the trance. Now, you might be thinking, you know, actually, I think I'd rather be in the trance if my body's feeling really bad or I'm feeling anxious. I'd rather kind of be a little bit off in my fantasies or whatever. And that's true. There is, there is a kind of an escapism that, of course, we want to get away from what's difficult. But ultimately, we're still coming here because something in us wants to learn to work with what's difficult so that we have the space to be here because something in us intuits that there's no real freedom. We can't be intimate. We can't be intimate with each other and with our life if we don't know how to be here. Everything that's important to us, love, wisdom, intimacy, feeling really alive, is only accessed through this committed presence. So the interesting inquiry is really getting to know what pulls us away, what stops us from being here. And in Buddhism and Western psychology, there's an understanding that we have this natural reflex when it's pleasant to try to cling on to something, when it's unpleasant to push it away. And what happens is, as we emerge, this awareness, which is what we are, identifies with the wanting, fearing self. In other words, we become identified with the wave and forget the source, our oceanness. In a very particular way, it's called eyeing and mying, that pleasantness will happen or unpleasantness will happen. And right after that, there's this thought, it's happening to me, I caused it. I need to get rid of it. And the whole incarnation of self starts solidifying around what's really just a changing movement of pleasant and unpleasant. 
eyeing and mying. The basic teaching of the Buddha was that we suffer because we forget who we are. Rather than remembering that mystery and that vastness and that love and that awakeness, this presence, we get identified, we spend most of our moments identified with this story of a self that's trying to have more good things happen and less bad things happen. We have glimmers of freedom, again, when we realize we are nature, we're part of that. When we're with each other and we really sense the who we are together. When we are in some way quiet enough so we're not living in that story, those, that incessant inner dialogue that keeps on representing to us this idea of who we are, where we're going and what's wrong. So the trick is how do we stop believing in those stories? Einstein said, only two things are infinite, the universe and human stupidity. And I'm not sure about the former. (laughs) So we believe in this limited identification of self. This is Ajayashanti, who is one of my teachers. He says, spiritually, the human condition is a natural part of the evolution of consciousness, trying to become conscious through a form. It takes itself to be the form rather than the source of the form. When it makes this misidentification, it suffers under the tremendous illusion of separation. This is again the wave in the ocean. Hence comes the isolation that most human beings feel in their hearts. No matter how many people are around them, no matter how much they're loved, they have to feel alone because they're quite sure they're different and separate from everybody else. So the selfing, this eyeing and mying, where, this, where awareness kind of identifies with this particular form, is particularly intense and we get most stuck when there's physical or emotional pain. And you know it when you get sick after a while, how much of the thoughts collect around something's going wrong, how am I going to feel better, and you become more and more of this entity that's contracted, isolated, and living in the story of something's wrong. And it's the same thing with emotional pain. The more we're really fearful or ashamed or angry, the more our entire world is, is kind of stuck in that self in here, having trouble, and world out there. So there's two kinds of ways that the selfing really, that I see it coagulating. And one is when the story is basically something's wrong with me, And the other is very related, which is when the story is something's wrong with my life. Okay? Those are the two major ways that that we most are caught in that separation, self in here and world out there. Something's wrong with me, something's wrong with my life. And so I'd like to just describe the process of, um, of how we can use this committed presence to move from that separateness of something's wrong with me or my life to feeling that truth of belonging what the Dalai Lama called this evolution of consciousness of really trusting we are nature we are awareness okay so I'll give you um, an example that um, 
really struck me, a, fr- a very old friend of mine who is on the West Coast. She grew up in a, in a very kind of traditional family that, you know, worshipped left brain intellectual analytic and her older brother was exactly the model of that and he became the lawyer and he was the Ivy Leaguer and she um, she got B minuses basically as she went through school so the message from her parents or the message she got was she wasn't intelligent she was a really lovely person and a charming person and a kind person but she wasn't the bright one okay and I'm sure that there's many people here that know what that's like, that in some way there was somebody else that was the star in some area. It might have been physical prowess or physical beauty or something else, but in some way the message was you're not the special one in that. And the people that grew up with you're the star live with a whole different story of deep down feeling they're going to fall down any moment and show that they really aren't, and which is the real truth to them, and um, are living under the pressure of always having to reaffirm their starhood. So it doesn't, it, it's, a, it's a lose-lose. But <laughs> so with this, with this woman, um, that was the message. And when her brother was going to law school, her, par- you know, her parents were glad she got into, into a nursing school and um, became a nurse. And over the years, she did some of this personal work of starting to really um, starting to meditate and pay attention and realize that she was living in this belief of not good enough, not the star, not intelligent. And was part of, at one point, a um, on the West Coast, one of the Kalyanamitta groups in the Bay Area, which is uh, our spiritual friends groups. We have them here, too. And she named it. She said, you know, I grew up with this story and belief that I'm not intelligent, and with that, that really something's wrong with me. I'm just kind of an inferior person. Because in families where intelligence is really important, it means a lot to not be intelligent. And other people started saying, oh. And they started naming their story of what was missing or wrong with them. And they began this process of really letting themselves not just name, but really feel the vulnerability of what it's like to live with that sense of something's wrong with you something's missing. So over time she started to begin to really trust that all her kinds of intelligence were just as valuable and interestingly she became a psychiatric nurse and then ended up running groups and has really become very fabulous at what I call being a mirror of goodness. Because she, when she could wake up out of her own story of something's wrong with you and this is true for any of us, when we're not holding those limiting beliefs about ourselves, when we see others, we don't box them in either. In fact, when for her, she began to really trust her intuition, her emotional intelligence, her creativity, it was like this kind of radiance that she could see the radiance in others. One of my uh, Dharma teacher friends says that when he does an interview at retreats with people, he sits and first he just looks to see the Buddha who's looking out. And then he works with a different conditioning with that person, but first see the Buddha that's there. It's really, this is, a, this is an expression of a committed presence. We begin by bringing a committed presence to the stories that we're living in that are holding us hostage. 
we bring a committed presence to the feeling of living in that. In other words, we face it, it's courageous. And that committed presence will reveal the very vibrant intelligence and love, the awareness that's really living through us. Maybe just take a moment to reflect. Let me invite you to kind of check in. So this is the this is part one. Part one is this committed presence where we're living with a limiting story about ourselves. Then we're going to go to part two, which is stories about our life. So you might, in this pause, wherever your mind has been, just take a moment to really arrive right here. Feel your breath, your body, your heart. And you might scan and sense in your life right now if there's anything that you believe about yourself. And it might be a message from your parents or it might be just a message you're aware of that you tell yourself that really has that basic kind of sense of something's wrong with me. It might be I'm selfish. It might be I I lack the courage to really live my life according to my heart. It might be that um, I'm not lovable, nobody's going to really want to be close to me. It might be that I'm a failure, I really never do what makes a difference in the world. So just sense if any of that kind of belief is lurking there. And just feel a willingness to just to bring a committed presence in these moments. You might sense what it's like to believe that belief. What's it like in your body and your heart? And you might exaggerate it since it's just an exercise that when you're believing in something limiting about yourself, What's it like? What's it like in your heart? You might sense how much this belief has in some way gotten in the way of living fully, of being maybe spontaneous or more loving with others or letting love in. just to let yourself feel in your body how it's affected your life. you might inquire, who would you be if you didn't believe that belief? If 
you didn't believe it anymore, who would you be? For a moment, just in this creative moment, sensing, okay, not believing that, what would your life be like? How would you view and relate to others? Knowing that in a few moments you're going to open your eyes and that you can give yourself that message that it's possible to keep bringing a committed presence to any place where your beliefs are keeping you from really living from your fullness, from your love, from your intelligence, from your creativity, from your aliveness. So we're going to go on to the something's wrong with my life kind of experience. But I wanted to say that Ajishanti, who I read before, says that there's no such thing as a true belief. And just to go ahead and reflect on that, but there's no such thing as a true belief. So something's wrong with my life. And it's usually, you know, other people are bad or that what's happening in this world is wrong and what's happening to me is wrong. It could be that something goes wrong in our body and we get a disease and it's not as much something's wrong with me like I'm a bad person but something's wrong that this is happening or something's wrong when somebody else that we love is struggling or suffering. So it's that sense that it shouldn't be this way. And we can go ahead and think that but it is that way and it doesn't help to think that. So this weekend at one of the other speakers at this conference was Isabel Allende and I had a chance to um, spend some time with her. Amazing person. She really inspired me. And she's a, she's a wonderful writer and her opening statement in her talk was that to be a good writer you have to have an unhappy childhood. <laughs> and, then, and then she went on to say how she's trying to give that to her grandchildren too. So. <laughs> she was very funny. But what she described, she described her process of writing, which I was listening to really carefully since I'm back in a writing project, and she said she has started every one of her 18 books or whatever it is on January 8th. She only will start a book on January 8th. <laughs> and she has this ritual where she clears out the deck. She you know, just tidies up her room and does all this stuff. And then on January 8th, she sits still and she goes into stillness. She becomes silent. She enters the silence. So this is committed presence. Not only that, she basically invites the unexamined places in her heart to reveal themselves. Okay? So we're talking about the same process of bringing a committed presence to wherever the tangles are, the limiting beliefs, the real clutches in our heart. And then she listens and then she says, out of that the stories and characters arise. And the, whatever writers write about is always a part of them and it's always a part of them that wants untangling and freeing. So this is no different than meditation. That we pause, we clear some space, 
we get still and we invite whatever's here to be here and we say yes noticing and saying yes so in one of her books the year before she wrote this book her daughter Paula um, went into a coma was in a coma for a year and then died and if you haven't read that book I haven't read it, I'm going to Um, so the way it happened was that there was negligence in the hospital um, there was a strike at the hospital and there were like 3,000 patients on a long weekend and so there was some sort of negligence and her daughter didn't get the attention she needed she went into this coma and so then the question was, you know her anger because how could you not feel anger and what she realized is that she couldn't feel angry and deal with her grief she couldn't grieve properly so there was this choice and some of you have heard that phrase that vengeance is a lazy form of grief that I've used in here vengeance is a lazy form of grief well she realized that if she stayed with the story of this is wrong, this shouldn't happen okay, we're back in this one that something's wrong out there she couldn't really bring that committed presence to the healing to the grief so she, during that year she wrote 180 letters to her mother about all of her anger and grief and despair and then um, her mother (laughs) bundled them up and after uh, a year or so after her daughter's death handed them back to her and she lived it and digested it and grieved it some more and then wrote this incredibly beautiful book and then the book brought in millions of dollars and so she started this foundation to really help um, women in need to empower women so I'm sharing this because it's really a very um, living illustration of the power of a committed presence that we can either stay with the belief of this is wrong and sometimes it feels so wrong or instead we can come into a pause and really be with the actual experience itself with a courageous and committed presence and when we do it hurts and it really at the very bottom is huge grief because there's always whenever we're um, wanting to run away we're wanting to run away from the feelings of loss of losing life in some way and when we stay with it there is this shift and this is the key thing this is the awakening spiritually from a sense of a separate self that's oppressed and struggling in this something wrong world to this space of heart and awareness that can hold this life that belongs to life this shift in identity is the essence of spiritual awakening and the path is presence if we can be present whatever's going on becomes a portal and it can move us from this separate self that's struggling and feeling insulted or defended or like a failure or whatever it is to the space that's tender and awake that's the power of a committed presence Chogyam Trungpa writes if you search for this awakened heart if you put your hand through your ribcage and feel for it there's nothing there except for tenderness 
you feel sore and soft. And if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this is an experience of unconditional sadness. This sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There's no skin or tissue covering it. It's pure, raw meat. Even if a mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw and tender. For the spiritual practitioner, this experience of the sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of our tenderness. It comes from letting the whole world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You're willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You're willing to sit here and share your heart with the whole of life. So to me that, that's a really beautiful description of the power of a courageous presence is that this heart becomes available. We're allowing ourselves to touch the wounds within our personal life and we let in the wounds and the hurt of the world. And that is what allows us to respond. I began you know, talking about this conference and really the um, message was how do we move from a world where it's us against them to a world of we're in it together and this togetherness can heal our world. And this committed presence isn't for the sake of being able to sit in this kind of bliss and just feel spacious and happy. It's so that we can discover this aliveness of heart and awareness and act from it in a way that is compassionate on this earth. And that's what's needed by this earth. The earth needs us to be, have this committed presence that then frees us so that our behavior and our words bring healing. So that, for instance, in this time of election, rather than locking into our story of who's bad and who's wrong, what we do is we open to a genuine quality of caring, that we care, we have a reverence for life, we have a deep care and concern for our earth, a deep care and concern for our earth. We have a deep care and concern for anything in this political world that creates more oppression. We have a deep care and concern for anything in this political world that fuels the cycles of violence and we act out of that care, not out of hatred, not out of anger. Because if we act and if our stories in our mind are out of hatred and anger, it just creates more. It's the state of consciousness that heals this world and the actions that come out of that state of consciousness. Bill Moyer says, what we need is what the ancient Israelites call, I might pronounce it wrong, but hachma. Did I say it right? Not chutzpah. Not chutzpah. I I know chutzpah. (laughs) Anyway, H-O-C-H-M-A. It's a cool hachmah. The science of the heart. And and this is what he says. This is what we need, the science of the heart, hachmah. And it's the capacity to see to feel, and then to act as if the future depended on you. Believe me, it does. So 
I'd like to end with a, a very, um, just a few words in a brief meditation, because I started really talking about our conditioning to feel separate. And I want to just respect that and say it's really strong and every one of us, most people I know anyway, return again and again into that trance of separate self here, world out there, I'm being mistreated, I'm not being understood, or I'm whatever, we all go back into trance. But this is the invitation of the path. This is the potential. We have this evolutionary potential to bring this committed presence to what's going on. And in that presence to discover we really are together. If we sense who is looking out through these eyes, who's behind these eyes, if we sense really who is feeling in this moment, this heart, who's listening, it's that same awakened heart, that same tender presence that Chogyam Trungpa called about. It's empty and awake. If we really trust that, In other words, if we let go of our limiting ideas about who we are, if that whatever you came up with tonight that you were believing that made you smaller than you are, if you brought a committed presence over and over as that nurse on the West Coast did, you will discover the intelligence and beauty and goodness of what you are and do it for the sake of this earth. Because if you trust who you are, you'll see it in others and call it out. If you're not limiting who you think you are, you'll look at others and you will see the goodness that's shining through that form. You'll call it out. So let's take a few moments just to arrive once again in this this committed and real presence. There can be a real quality of kindness that softens us into this presence. You might sense whatever is going on right now inside you. Whatever sensations in the body or feelings in the heart. And just behold it with a quality of kindness. sense the goodness, the presence that's within you, the one who really does long to love without holding back, the one who longs to live fully. You might bring someone else to mind right now, someone in your life that may be struggling, Just sense maybe the story or belief that's holding that being in that kind of prison of self. Maybe a feeling of personal failure, 
or that the world's against them. And see beyond the story, see who they are, who that person is. Sense that you could be a mirror for their goodness. You could call their goodness out. Sensing that with this committed presence you could meet anyone in this room or anywhere and that space of your heart could hold them and behold them in a healing way. Sensing as you sit here that your heart is wide enough to hold this whole world. Rumi writes, if ten lamps are present in one place, each differs in form from another, yet you can't distinguish whose radiance is whose when you focus on the light. In the field of spirit there is no division. Sweet is the oneness of the friend with friends. Catch hold of the spirit. Help this headstrong self dissolve that beneath it you may discover unity like a buried treasure. Thank you for your presence tonight. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.